Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Church London. You're listening to a message given on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to know more about us and the life of the church, please visit trinitychurchlondon.com. One of our foundational commitments as a church and beliefs is that this book, the Bible, is God's word to us. And because it's God's word to us, it has relevance to us and we base our lives and we ground our life on this book and in this book and it means that one of the practices we have as a church is essentially taking books from the bible and just studying the book from beginning to end so that we don't pick and choose the various passages that we may like or may not like so you don't just get the preacher's hobby horse every other Sunday. We actually deal with the whole of Scripture because we believe that all of Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for us. And there are some passages that are particularly tricky or difficult. And as I was studying this week, almost every commentator that I came across at the beginning of their bit when they came to this passage said, this is probably the most difficult passage in the New Testament. And by about 10 o'clock last night, I understood why they said that. This is a very tricky passage. There are a number of reasons why this is, this is difficult. So intellectual reasons, like there are some very tricky bits in here to like just literally interpret phrases. Even as I was reading that out loud, I was getting, I was fumbling over man, woman, man, you know, there's a very circular, tightly argued uh, thing that's going on here. So just interpreting that is difficult. Applying it today is difficult because there are things about head coverings and not having head coverings and having hair and not having hair. And what does it mean if you, don't have hair or do have hair and so that's complicated to apply it it's also difficult and complicated because i would imagine even as we're reading some of those phrases out loud there is an emotional response because i would imagine all of us to lesser or greater degrees have experienced some kind of abuse from someone who has been heavy-handed or has misused authority women and men and so these verses regretfully even in church have been used in sinful ways this is a righteous book but sinful people come to a righteous book and actually can if you come with a selfish heart you can take selfish conclusions and the church has not always got this right i'm not claiming that the final word is going to be spoken today this is always a danger oh for two thousand years but today i have the answer I'm going to give it my best shot. But emotionally, and I just want to acknowledge that that's real, that there might have been, actually, you might have personally experienced some misuse of authority, either in a marriage or in church or out in society. And so there are very real pressure points in your soul which get pressed in this point. One of the emotions you might have is a feeling of uncertainty because if you're exploring faith and you think, Okay, I, I thought Jesus was like lovely and it was all about freedom. And this feels like highly restrictive down to the point of like telling me what I can and cannot wear. What is the God that is behind this kind of religion? And as I thought, when I first read this again fresh, I thought, gosh, this seed of uncertainty, are we getting things right? And if we do follow this to the T, what does that mean? Have we been making mistakes? And what does that mean of my understanding of, of God? So sometimes seeds of uncertainty can be sown into our lives. 
are we getting this wrong? And if this is right, what, do I want to follow this? You know, all these kind of emotions, I would imagine. I felt them. And, and really what I'm imploring us to do is to, to wrestle. To wrestle with this passage, and I can't touch all of it, but also to wrestle somewhat with our own heart. If we can acknowledge that all of us, men and women, come with selfish hearts to a text like this, and we don't naturally always agree with all parts of the scripture, what we're asking God to do by the Holy Spirit is to wrestle our heart into submission under all of scripture, including the bits we don't understand. In different parts of the world and in different generations, different passages are controversial. For some generations and in different nations, this isn't. Right now, this is highly controversial. We live in a confused age when it comes to gender. I don't have to rehearse the kind of documentaries and discussions that are going on right now about what makes a woman a woman and what makes a man to man for us to know that we're in a big discussion about all of this, right? And yet we have this teaching. There are two, I think, equal and opposite mistakes we can make when it comes to a passage like this. The first is, this is just clearly a mistake written by Paul, who was probably chauvinistic because he was a man of his age. And he didn't know better, bless him, but he was speaking into his culture. And so when we get to this bit about head coverings and hair length, like a man cannot tell a woman what to do with her dress. And therefore, we just need to pass this passage to one side because it's just not for today. We just say, no, 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 that's not for now. Which runs a very real danger of when it comes to another passage that we don't like, ignoring that one and then another passage that we don't like ignoring that one and so we basically picked and choose our own God and we have a God who is in our own image in any relationship you know that there are moments of disagreement right and when it comes to a creature with a creator a sinful person with a holy God we would expect there to be some disagreements or some misunderstandings into what we know of God's and so we just need to pause for a second as we come to more like this and think, maybe there is some truth. So that's one mistake, to throw the whole thing away. The other mistake is to take everything that the scriptures say as completely literal and unthinkingly apply it. We don't do any thinking. We say we take the Bible literally because that often goes hand in hand with believe the Bible is God's word. So we take it literally. So anything that Paul says, we just do. And so we don't think about context and culture and what is actually going on then and for us. And so what I want to try and do is get the best of both. I want to try and look at what, are the, what is the timeless principles that Paul is laying down with a theological, vast theological foundation. And what are some of the timely Practices. What are the, some of the ways in which God, uh, Paul is laying out God's design for gender? And what are the, some of the things that the culturally contextualized ways of representing that, if that makes sense? So there are lots of different ways we could get into this. I'm going to get into this via the cultural symbols of, of Paul's day. And he's talking about hair coverings and hair length for both men and women. So let, let me just read these verses once more. It says in verse 11, verse 4, he says, he says, every man who prays or prophesies, that is, shares in church on the Sunday in the gathering with his head covered, dishonors his head. 
but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven for if a wife will not cover her head then she should cut her head short this is a bit of a circular argument here but he says that's inappropriate but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head let her cover her head and then drop down to verse 14 he kind of reiterates the point from a different standpoint that we'll touch on later it says does not nature itself teach you that if a man if a man has long hair it is a disgrace for him but if a woman has long hair it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering let me just place this into the the moment that in corinth that they were living in corinth uh, in a sense like any city was a highly contested city culturally and you have very different cultures clashing in the same place and it was very often the the common for women in that culture to cover their hair when they were married as a sign of respect to their husband and it showed a um, sexual faithfulness to their husband and the women who had their hair uncovered were the sex workers who were attached to the temple in Corinth which was a huge literally overshadowing temple in the city of Corinth that dominated society and so for a woman in that society to walk around with her head hair uncovered was culturally symbolizing something about her availability for some cultures that's still the same today right and if you go and travel to some cultures it is appropriate because in the cultural symbol in the nation is different to what it is today there are some tribes today where women walk around without any tops on and that's not seen as a sexual thing it's just what they do for us uh, you know wearing uh, this, this is why I want to don't want to get into trouble you see I start, I start you said that um, and this is where and this let me just rescue myself from rewind time for a second yeah <laughs> I was saying to Tori, I was trying to work out with Tori, like, you know, it's, the, the, sometimes the church, let me get real for a second, some of the church has got, in, got its, gotten to a bother about this because they've tried to, like, apply this so carefully and maybe with good intentions, but have stipulated this is what it looks like. I'm not sure we can do that, and I'm certainly not the one to do that. But... There are two things we have to bear in mind the context that we're living in which is confusing when you're in london because it's like everything in one place so like choose your context but also conscience and i think conscience and context are really in really important in this but what paul is getting at here in part at the kind of the top level is uncovering is somehow disrespecting as a wife to the husband because she is in a sense representing something of openness in a relationship to others she is not showing fidelity to her to her husband and then we get on to hair length which is confusing paul says down in verse 14 he appeals to nature and he seems to suggest that generally men are those who have their hair cut short and generally notice underlining bold italics generally women have their hair long and clearly this is 
not a universal rule because you have people like Erling Haaland who have their hair so long and yet he's a very manly man you go to Jamaica and if have your hair long it doesn't mean that you're a woman it doesn't mean that at all so but generally men have their hair short and women have their hair long and it seems like what Paul is getting at and he indicates at the very end is that there is a way in which we are to respect our gender male or female and we are to represent our gender that we are to through our physical means display the fact that me as a man I'm a male and if you're a woman you are female and where that boundary line gets crossed (laughs) we need to talk about it but I, I would think if I turned up to church next Sunday and I was wearing lipstick and high heels somewhere from waking up on Sunday morning to getting to church a boundary was crossed where that boundary got crossed we can have a discussion but a boundary was crossed because I would be representing myself not as who I am a man so Paul is getting at here with these symbols of hair covering and hair length how we represent ourselves as male and female and how within a marriage and we have to be careful here because some of this headship talk is only applying to married people how in a marriage we represent our faithfulness to one another wife to the husband and the husband to the wife all of which might feel like simple ish until you get into the theology that Paul is basing this on And I want to just draw out three things that Paul seems to touch on here. And this is where we start wading out into the deep. Because Paul talks in verse 3, firstly, about how our understanding of how we are to relate to one another as male and female on the basis of how God the Father and Christ relate to to one another. So he says in verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of christ is god so you have four people involved here you have god god the father he's inferring who is the head of christ and then christ is the head of the husband and then the husband is the head of the wife our problem i think one of our problems in our society is that we see this immediately like a business hierarchical organizational chart we immediately overlap our secular society onto this and think CEO, you know, senior leadership, middle management and the interns. And so you overlap that onto something like this and you feel like this, this does not feel good to have God, Christ, husband, wife. What does that mean for the wife in all of this? So a key thing we have to do is understand what it means to be head. And there are two things, and they are probably both true and both overlapping. And one of the things that headship means is to be the source or the life giver of another. Because we have this when Christ, we're told, who is the Son of God, and the Father eternally, we're told, begets the Son. So the Son was never created. Jesus has eternally been so with the Father. 
And yet we're told that the Son is eternally generated or eternally begotten. He receives his life always from the Father. He is, in a sense, sustained by the Father through the Spirit. And so Jesus relies on the Father for his life. They are one father and son and so headship has something to do with a flow of source and life and energy father to the son but headship also has to do with some form of authority because later he talks about the 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 the, uh, the um, headdress the covering being a sign of authority and so this headship respecting the wife respecting her husband is a way of respecting her head, which is saying there is an authority over me. So headship has something also to do with authority. And again, you think, alarm bells. But then we have to understand, well, how does God the Father and God the Son work out this headship? How does the Son relate to the Father and the Father relate to the Son? The Son, we're told, willingly comes to the Father in submission to the Father. And we're told in the Gospels that he doesn't just run around like the Middle East thing. I'm free from my Father's house. I can do anything I like now. Actually, he comes prayerfully considering the Father. What, what would you have me do? How can I serve you? How can I? And when it gets to the moment of um, uh, the final obedience, he's praying, not my will, but your will be done, Heavenly Father. I only want to do what is in line with your will. So Jesus comes willingly. And what does the father do with his headship over the son, with his source and with his authority over the son? Does the father run roughshod over the son and say, great, I've got an assistant here, a very powerful assistant, but an assistant to get the task of seeing the kingdom come done? No, the father takes his energy and uses that energy to lift up his son so that the son might become the center of all things and he glorifies and beautifies his son so that the son might become the one who is sat on the throne this is this is what god the father does with jesus Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So what does God the Father do with his authority when he sees Jesus? He gives him the name. See where the the transactional energy is going. It is the Father giving to the Son and exalting the Son. It says, giving him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how does God the Father use this headship? By lifting up his son. And then we see this reflected in marriage when Paul teaches later in Ephesians chapter 5, and he addresses husbands who are called the head in a marriage And Paul says this to husbands. He doesn't say, guys, this is great for you because you're the head. So you get to do whatever you like and you can just ask your wife to do things. And no, completely the opposite. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands, to be ahead does not mean that you get to do what you want. Rather, you are attentive to your wife's needs so that she may flourish and you give up your life so that she might be exalted and that she might be beautified and that she might flourish in her life. This is the way of headship. 
that he, the husband, might sanctify her, that might see her flourish and grow in holiness, thrive in strength, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church, talking about Jesus of the church, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. So the result of headship when it's working properly in a marriage is not that the man has special privileges, but the man has special responsibility. And at the end of the day, he has a bride who is flourishing in strength and beauty. That's when you know that headship is at work and working well. It has nothing, and I cannot say it strongly enough, and I've had to work this out in my own heart, has nothing to do with getting your own way. Because when we hear authority, we think in worldly terms or in political terms or in business terms. I've gone one step up in the organisation. I get to call the shots now. And yet when it comes to headship in a marriage, it's saying, you are the centre. You are my glory. Let, how can I serve you? How can I lay down my life to see you grow in strength and beauty? So that's headship, which I think gets to, I mean, I don't even know if I should reference this verse, but I did read it out loud. So I think I got a few more minutes. In verse seven, there is this really tricky verse. I mean, really, that would be all really tricky, but for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And that feels really tough. But what we know that it, it's not saying is that Husbands have a special place as the image of God that wives don't because we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that God made male and female two genders and they both reflect the glory of God. A man reflects the glory of God fully by himself and the woman reflects the glory of God fully by herself. And yet something unique and special of the gospel comes together in marriage with husband and wife. So it's not saying that, that the woman is something lesser but I think in the context of this giving away of energy and sacrifice and life and service from head to, those, to, the, to the woman who is to receive, I, I think within this context and within the context of Genesis 2, where the woman is the final and the pinnacle of creation, when it says that woman is the glory of man, I think this is talking about not order of importance at all, but something of the, the journey that we as humanity and husbands make with their wives where the wife truly is his glory. Like his life and his service and his love is finally represented in his wife, in the flourishing and the well-being of a wife that he treasures. Because we're told that Adam was, was formed first and this passage is soaked in Genesis 2 and it feels like the order of creation is so important. But the pinnacle of creation is not Adam. The last and final being who was created was woman. And it seems in the scripture when you follow the whole narrative of scripture that actually the climax of creation is feminine. And that the climax of creation is beauty beheld in a woman, finally in Eve, I mean, 
Adam, there's no poetry written about Adam, but when Eve is created, it climaxes with this poetry and this song. It's like, at last, a beauty to behold. And when the second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes along and he does his creative work in being crucified, what comes forth from the second and final Adam is his bride, the church. That the church is the pinnacle of creation, Christ's bride. We, feminine, as the church, are the final, the glory of Christ. And so... For the husband to have a glory in his life is to have a bride that he treasures. And I think this gets to something of the flow that Paul is talking about, which is why you can see you quickly have to rip up any sense of organisational chart or like who gets to call the shots in this kind of relationship. It's nothing about that. And in fact, every different marriage relationship, the woman and the man have, have different strengths and abilities. I grew up in a context where my father did all the finance. You know, when you're a kid, you just, that's, just expect that's how it is. And uh, I met some Korean friends many years ago, where we shared a building with a Korean church. And in Korean culture, it's quite often for the wife to look after all the finance. And I remember hearing that from the pastor and thinking, my wife looks after all the finance. So I was like, you know, as a young man, just learning about the world and stuff like that. I was like, huh, I kind of thought that was the man's job, but okay then like they were godly people so you realize like i was just culturally conditioned this is what a man does but what if the man is dyslexic or doesn't do numbers or is not and the wife is very strong and the count you know there are strengths and weaknesses on both sides and so we can't define what malehood looks like in a very tightly controlled cultural way nor female looks like in a very tightly controlled female way it's conscience and context there's headship secondly the order of creation which we kind of touched on but let me just verse eight and nine says this for man was not made from woman this is arguing why there is a difference between genders that we are not the same for man was not made from woman but woman from man and neither was man created for woman but woman for man And so again, he goes back to this creation order that there was Adam first and from Adam, Eve was formed. And implied in this is the Genesis 2 passage where Eve is then called the helper of Adam. Adam was given this task, this mandate to guard and to tend this garden. This was his mission that it gets replicated in scripture as pouring forth and bringing out the kingdom of God further and further. He's tasked with this. And God looks at Adam and says, not because he's lonely. He says, oh, poor Adam, he'd, he'd really do with a companion at night after his day's work. No, he's saying it's not about loneliness. It's not about a negative. The task cannot be completed in the context, guarding and tending the garden, This needs to be done with another. And so he provides a helper in Eve. And as one commentator said, not from Adam's head to rule over him, not from his feet to be under him, but from literally his side to be an equal co-partner in this task. And so Eve is given to Adam as a helper. And to understand helper, we just got to think it kept, because you could think, well, does that mean like it's just a, a beautiful assistant I have in my life as a husband. Not at all. What a helper needs two things. A helper needs to have something that the other person doesn't. 
like there are gifts abilities that one has that the other that otherwise there's, there's no help and the helper also needs to be willing to serve the other so for example kiki comes home with her maths homework and to be honest i stare at it sometimes and have panic attacks myself because i think they've changed maths again like i don't understand i thought i knew basic fractions but i clearly don't but i do know like maybe two percent more than her so she comes and she needs help so like i've got to give her some help so i have a little bit of knowledge that she doesn't so i can use that there is difference there and i've got a willing heart i want to see her do well in her homework and in her schooling and so i become her helper does that mean that i am inferior to my daughter no it doesn't make me superior i'm his, i'm her helper and helper is most commonly applied to God himself of us, humanity. That God is our helper. So this has nothing to do with having an assistant. This is about someone who has complementary gifts and characteristics coming alongside another and saying, I am willing to serve you. This is what it is for a wife to be the helper of a husband and this is not a one-way street because paul then goes and labors the point he says we're not interdependent we're not independent he says nevertheless in the lord woman is not independent of man nor man of woman for as man was made woman was a man so man is now born there is this interdependence codependency that we have from one another and i think there is deep down in men this thinking that we're often self-sufficient we can do it on our own in fact you know oftentimes we're told as men be self-sufficient you're your own man you do your own thing and there's like jokey memes that go around you know manly memes about what it is to be a a man which are kind of funny but not funny <laughs> and you know what's the anthem for women of this generation if there were an anthem i mean the one that popped into my head was destiny's child you know what's the punchline i depend on me right and that's what we're told i'm not going to depend on a man and disney is now being rewritten because you don't want to have someone falling in love with a man because that would create some kind of interdependence on another that feels weak you women are strong and men and so you realize that men feel like i've got to be self-sufficient and women feel like i don't need a man i can do life on my own thanks i've got my own job my own money and yet what well, paul is saying no when it comes together in the church husband and wife there is this interdependence where a husband depends on his wife and a wife depends on her husband i had to learn this when i first got married and i, I was thinking i would literally think to myself i don't understand why husbands say to their wives i need you those literal words because the way i like mentalized it it's a wrong word isn't it but the way i intellectualized it was that sounds needy to me i i i want toria i'm attracted to her i'm drawn to her i desire to be her husband that felt romantic to me because I, I want you i don't need you I do want you and so I, I literally like went through my head like we had little conversations thankfully Tori had forgotten these conversations early on in marriage as we we're working everything out and I just thought that's what like I got to be self-sufficient like don't show emotion you just get on you do your job etc etc and I want you and 17 years now into marriage <laughs> I can say that I've been humbled enough by life and been beaten down by life enough and have grown to appreciate toria so much more that i now say confidently that i need my wife i literally need her 
physically, emotionally, for her wisdom, her insight, the balance that she gives me. I, I need Victoria. And, hus- and wives need their husbands for different reasons. And they might be slightly nuanced in different marriages because of different personalities and different strengths. But we need one another. Amen. Something of the interdependence and I wasn't sure whether to bring this up, but I, I, I think I will. We're in the deep end anyway, so in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Um, headship and submission, which can feel very on their own, just it, it has to do with giving and, and receiving. Because when we get to Genesis 3, we're told that the curse that gets placed on husbands and wives is this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing to the woman and in pain you shall bring forth children and to the wife your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And this is not God saying this is the dictate of how you should be. This is him saying this is the curse because of sin. This is when things are going wrong, this is what it looks like. The husband is trying to rule and control and dominate and just get his own way. And the wife is trying to contradict and get one up over her husband, constantly disrespecting her husband. And to bring healing and the power of God into marriage is for the husband not to rule, but to serve and So what it means as a husband to grow in godliness is to repent of those moments of a demanding spirit and actually lay his life down and serve and then for the wife to willingly receive her husband's care, even if it's not done very well, as I testify to often, (laughs) falteringly try to love wife's submission is a submission to a husband who is seeking to care and love for her wife his wife and this is physically represented in physical intimacy that there is a giving and receiving in love that is to be replicated in a relational emotional physical way as well that the wife is to allow the husband to serve him not think i don't need you i'm independent i've got my own strength and powers but say okay i will receive your help and the husband say, I'm going to do my best to give you everything I've got so that you do really well in life. And if we can do that, I think they'll be flourishing. The third thing is this, that our genders are given to us by God. And this is where he touches on at the very end. He says this um, in verse 14, he appeals to, to nature, which he seems to think is obvious. But, you know, as I'm reading it at first, thought, I'm like, it's not entirely obvious, Paul, um, to, to my mind. But he seems to think it is. Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Sometimes as well, the language can feel very strong, right? Disgrace. It feels like you're a disgrace backhand round the cheek you know go stand in the corner why is your hair two inches too long so sometimes the language can come across very strong when maybe the heart is more tender but he's saying it's it's essentially generally going back to the beginning generally men are to have shorter hair women to have because he's saying gender is something that god has assigned it's in our nature where is it in our nature well we know now that it's even down to the cellular level that we are hardwired to be either male 
or female that we are biologically assigned by God to be either a man or a woman and we are called therefore to reflect that in maleness or femaleness and what that doesn't mean is that men have to be macho and that women need to like pink and ballet just because a man might like interior design and the royal opera house and a woman might like football and stella artois doesn't make them either less of a man or less of a female why is a female a female because god has gifted her with that gender biologically and why is a man a man not because of the certain likes or dislikes he has in life but because of the biological gender that god has gifted him with so our biological nature is important and gifted by god amen so let me sum up on what has been a very quiet sunday from you lot men and women are both made in the image of god independently by ourselves male and female made in the image of god we are both called to play a full role in the church paul doesn't say to the women here by the way women please don't pray and prophesy he says no when you pray and prophesy there an expectation that both men and women will be praying and prophesying leading publicly in the church meeting that we are to be interdependent upon one another that the men in this church cannot do it alone that we need women with us and women in the church cannot do the mission alone you need i say with humility and a very a little bit of self-awareness of my own weakness you need men we need maleness and femaleness to fully replicate the fullness of god and see the task of tending the garden complete and if we're to have a humble heart in all of this i think we could get to a very beautiful place the church is called to be an embassy of the kingdom of god to be something of the replication of the undoing of the curse something of the undoing of the sin that is in our lives of the confusion and of the abuse of the male's role and the female's role but here together at trinity church london we are on a journey to learn how to do this together for the glory of god amen so let me close with this paul tells timothy in 2 timothy 2 7 to think on these things so think on these things women let me encourage you to think on these things and the lord will give you understanding in everything men think on these things and the lord will give you understanding in everything trinity church london may we think on these things actually consider them think them through discuss them and the lord by his grace will give us understanding in everything amen, amen.